You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast that brings you face-to-face with the minds behind the most pulse-pounding, suspense-filled stories out there. I'm Alan Peterson, an author of Mysteries and Thrillers myself, which is why I interview writers working in the genre that I love to write and read. With over 200 interviews and counting, I've spoken to thriller icons like Dean Kuntz, Walter Mosley, Tess Gerritsen, and Lee Child, and many other amazing authors from both traditional publishing houses and the indie scene. From writing tips to exclusive book previews and reviews, you won't find a better resource for all things thriller and mystery. Dive deeper into the rabbit hole at thrillerauthors.com, where you'll find an archive of all my interviews, show notes, book reviews, and more. And don't forget to sign up for my Thrilling Reads newsletter for exclusive deals on must-read books in our genre. That's over at thrillerauthors.com. Stay tuned for episode 194 with best-selling author and artificial intelligence expert, Andrew Maine. Uh, hey, everybody. This is Alan with Meet the Thriller Author. And on the podcast, I have uh, Andrew Maine, who is a best-selling author, magician, inventor, and an artificial intelligence expert who has appeared on Shark Week and A&E's Don't Trust Andrew Maine. He was the uh, science communicator for OpenAI and their first prompt engineer. And at OpenAI, he worked on GPT-4 and ChatGPT, GPT-3, all that good stuff, creating many of the original prompts and examples used today. Uh, he's now the founder of Interdimensional, an artificial intelligence service uh, consultancy that helps companies deploy AI solutions. And of course, he's a thriller author, best-selling author. His uh, n- uh, next thriller, Night Owl, is a brand new series about a former Cold War era counterintelligence agent who finds himself in the fast-paced and slightly insane world of Silicon Valley, which will be published on December 1st and is available for pre-order now. Uh, where did you get this in the Valley, I wonder? <laughs> I don't know, man. Creativity is a mystery, man. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into we'll get into all that. But thank you so much for coming on the on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Alan. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you know, it was funny when I when, when this whole chat GPT went to the public and I started looking into it. And I started seeing your blog, your website get popping up all the time. So I learned a lot from reading your website. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really cool that a thriller author is now like an uh, expert in this stuff. And this whole is a artificial intelligence. And, uh, you know, when, I, when when we first when you first were on the show on the podcast in 2020, I never even heard of uh, <laughs> of ChatGPT or OpenAI. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how crazy is that? When, how did you get into AI and then working for OpenAI? How did all, all that come about? Well, I, you know, I've always been interested in artificial intelligence and robots. When I was a kid, I used to build like, I'd take coffee cans and stuff and build robots and they didn't work very well, but I would take apart toys and build stuff. And then when we got our first computer, I try to make very simple chat bots, you know, just basic sort of thing. If you go, what's your favorite color? Red. And then like, oh, you know, if if red appears here, then say, cool, like apples are red. I'd make very simple stuff. And then... By the time I got to high school, you know, you know, when my senior year of high school, maybe Gopher had came out. That was like the first, you know, browser, like the first, like the World Wide Web was really even in its infancy. I think Tim Berners-Lee was still finishing this stuff. And so I was sort of determining my career path on the idea that like, well, tech is exciting, but it's not a lot of fast moving stuff. It was the world of Windows. Apple was sort of in its decline and whatnot. And so I was really attracted to, 
you know, as a magician. And so I lived in South Florida. I had the opportunity to become a cruise ship magician and perform in resorts. So straight out of high school, I did that. I headlined and I traveled around the world doing magic because that just was seemed more attractive. I didn't think I would be missing anything out. And then while doing that, you know, the internet happened and a bunch of other things happened. And I kept thinking, hey, I want to get more involved in technology. So I followed stuff pretty closely. And I launched, you know, a blogging company in the early aughts and a podcasting company and stuff. But you know, it was more of a thing I would follow. I'd read research papers and keep, you know, keep a little bit into it. But it wasn't until about eight years ago, seven years ago, I decided to get kind of real serious about all of it. And, you know, since then, I did a lot of fun stuff. And I was in the middle of actually working on a special for Shark Week. And the, I pitched them the idea that I was going to make myself invisible to great white sharks. You know, very idiotic thing to do, but, you know, whatever to get on TV. And working on that, I wanted to build a system that would let me see like 360 degrees around me. And I'd been playing around with different AI stuff at the time. There's a thing called, you know, GANs, which is generative adversarial networks, which basically is a way to like the first image models you'd see where they created kind of things you could look at, use that. And I trained little ones on my computer to do that. And then, you know, I built some, started playing around with like some text generation models that that time were very, very simple. And then I kind of got a little more serious because I only really got picked up programming like a year before, learned Python. And then for the Shark Week thing, I started playing around more with image recognition and started to train models to do other stuff. And it was very fascinating. And so I just sort of got really into the field. And it was really the thing that hooked me into it was while I was learning about building image detection systems and the way they work, they have different sort of algorithms. But one of the things they often look for is like you take an image, you take out all the color and you reduce it to look for edges and you look for stuff. If you want to spot a face, you look for two eyes and two nostrils. You know, that's one of the things you could do. And there's a thing called HAR-like features, which is sort of an edge detection thing. While I was working on this, I was talking to a shark researcher. They made a comment to me. They said, yeah, you know, if you're in a cage, the great white doesn't see you. They just see the outline of the cage. And I'm like, huh, that's a very interesting thing because that involves a certain amount of post-processing for what they're seeing. And if you think about it, great white sharks have a tremendous amount of sensory input. They've got incredible vision. They've got great sense of smell. They can pick up vibrations, electrical fields, all these other bits of data, but they got small brains. But sharks have been around longer than trees. You know, sharks have been around like 300 million years. They're a very, very successful species. And part of that is by being very efficient. And I thought at the time, the way they described it sounded very much like a very efficient image algorithm. Like, what's the minimal amount of resources I need to compute to figure something out? And that led to me figuring out my intuition on how I was going to fool great white sharks. You know, I pitched the idea of this sort of predator suit with LCD camouflage and stuff, uh, which worked for 15 minutes in the ocean, then totally started to short out. But I had a better method to do that. But that parallel between artificial intelligence and what was going on there in biology really got me interested because once I had an analogy to get hold of, I just sort of dove right in. And not long after OpenAI, who I'd been following because I thought it was a very interesting effort, this company was started as a nonprofit and their goal was, you know, how do you prevent AI become from becoming Skynet? How do you prevent it from like, you know, you know, the existential threats and whatnot? And they had released, they did some cool stuff like having, you know, having training systems that could beat the world's best gamers, like in defense of the ancients and whatnot. And then they put out a thing called GPT-2. They did GPT-1, which was a paper that got a little bit of attention. And GPT-1 basically took something that Google had discovered called the transformer and realized it was really good for predicting like the next word in a sequence. And the way this did worked was basically if you took a ton of data, a ton of text, whatever, 
the AI would learn by looking at stuff and trying to make a guess what the next word would be, but then kind of get look ahead and guess ahead. And it could make a better effort than this trying to guess a word. An example would be if I said to you, I went down to the park and I walked into the dugout and I saw a bat. In a traditional model, you would just assume it's a baseball bat because you heard park, you heard dugout, you heard this. But if I said a bat hanging from the rafters and it flew away, well, then you would know it was the mammal bat. And a transformer type model can actually figure out like, oh, may not always be baseball bat. It could be this other thing. And language is a lot of taking different paths and stuff. And by scaling these systems up, they did from GPT-1 and then GPT-2, they're able to actually have GPT-2 could generate coherent text and it could kind of follow that for a couple of paragraphs. So when they released that, as so a writer, you know, I've been writing for the last, uh, you know, 16, 15 years now, you know, I was very interested to see what was that intersection of AI and language. And they posted all the examples on GitHub, a repository for code and whatnot. And I read through every single example they posted because at that time you couldn't play with GPT-2 yourself. So I read every single example they had there and trying to understand what was the process. And as I did that, I could kind of see, okay, it's paying attention to the original prompt here. Then it's sort of going off on this tangent and now it's paying attention to there and it's going to there. And it's kind of relates to a thing, there's a thing called attention mechanisms, which basically has to do with how the model decides how it's going to train itself and proceed. And you could sort of see a pattern to that. So I became obsessed with this. And then out of the blue, OpenAI reached out to me in early 2020. And somebody I had known that I was really into kind of the stuff and following a bit, but talking about it on podcasts and stuff. And they said, you'll put you on NDA. And then I said, do you want to play with GPT-3? I'm like, GPT-3? Like, yes, I do. <laughs> and I was obsessive. Like, I just would stay up late. I just put out a book. I was between, you know, book releases. So I had plenty of spare time. So I just released a book and just spent, I'd be up till 4 or 5 a.m. playing with it and trying to understand taking what I knew about GPT-2 and taking, taking a look at GPT-3 and figuring out how do you get it to do what you want to do. Now, I have to understand that between GPT-3 and chat GPT is GPT-3 was a model that was just trained on a bunch of text. It wasn't taught afterwards. If somebody asks you to make a list, make a list. Somebody says, do this, do that. It literally was just trying to predict the next sequence from a bunch of text. So if you said, you know, this is, you know, Alan Peterson's blog about, you know, the movie Alien and what I like, it would go, okay, I guess this is what I would, what would something on the internet or a blog post look like? And it would continue writing down. If you said, write a blog post about this, maybe it might work, maybe it wouldn't. So prompting was very different than prompting was really trying to figure out how to get the model to do what you wanted it to do. And that kind of realized you had to look at the world of text to say, if I want it to be factual, then I should probably say, you know, this is an abstract, you know, title abstract, you know, materials research study or something. Give it in the world of text where it would find something. If I wanted it to be sort of truthful, I would figure out a truthful story. If I wanted to be creative, I'd figure that out. So opening eye was a very small company at that time. And, you know, here I was just showing all these examples. I'd send them videos and stuff and also be coding up examples using making apps for the iPhone and all this and showing a lot of this potential. And they asked me, said, you know, would you like to work with us? And I've never had like a real job in my entire life. Uh, but I looked at, <laughs> yeah, I know. And I looked at what's going on there and I said, yeah. So they hired me to write prompts. They hired me to be, I was running a project called Creative Applications. And that was in 2020 and work with different teams there. The applied team would work with researchers. 
And then two years ago, I became the science communicator for OpenAI, where basically I would help, you know, help figure out how do we explain these things? How do we do that? And still play with the stuff and do all that. So very long explanation, but that's how I came into work at OpenAI. So we, so you were there when they went to the public, when they opened it up to the public? Before, yeah, yeah actually, before. yeah. Yeah, I was at the, I was one of the, the alpha testers. And, you know, that was, and then, so I wrote the, the documentation for GPT-3 and I wrote the examples for GPT-3. So the stuff you go there oh, and they wow, see yeah. all those things, airport codes, oh, that's me. That was like late at night. Like, I wonder if it could do this. And then internally, they're so busy building and doing stuff that, you know, I'd get a call, you know, somebody would say like, hey, do you think we could do this with it? I'd be like, I don't know. And so I was the prompt whisperer internally um, and, and not for any amazing skill or talent, but just from sheer maniacal energy at which I threw at the system trying to figure out how to get to do cool things. Were you, uh, what was the, when it got released in November to the public, did you, were you surprised at how it exploded or were you expecting it? How, so what, it was been crazy for you guys. Yeah. So that's a background. So we had back in 2020, we, we released in like the summer GPT-3, which was an API where you could go online to the website there and use their playground to play with it. Right. And it was very powerful, but it wasn't as accessible to people as, you know, as perhaps it could have been. So that was one of the things OpenAI worked towards doing was trying to improve that. And then one of the things they did is they looked how people used it and they created a category of model called the instruct models. And what instruct models were, were basically taking you know, an example of, you know, make a list of 10 science fiction books and it gives you a list of this, not you are a blog and you're supposed to be doing this and blah, blah. And that's why I see a lot of people doing prompting, a lot of prompt experts today that are doing, wasting a lot of words and stuff too. Cause I'm like, these new models are different. It's not the same as it was before, but anyhow, the new instruct models became more capable, but still there was a little bit more to do. So uh, a team at OpenAI basically said, let's let's take a ton of data on basically really good interactions between what people want and how they succeed. Also help guide the model so it's not going to give you things you don't want. You don't want to say, I'm having trouble at work and it tells you you should punch your boss. That would be bad. And so basically it's called reinforcement learning with the human feedback. Well, basically ideas like it would try a bunch of different things and every down the human would say, yes, this is good. No, that's not. It would keep that cycle going until it built up a lot of data. So that newer model, we, the Instruct series, they took that and then they took a user interface and we we were in November. We had a meeting because remember November last year, still not even a year ago. That's the crazy part. We're, we're less than a year into ChatGPT. Last year, we're sitting there planning for the rollout of GPT-4. Now, GPT-4 had been ready for months, but we'd been testing it. So it was under the hood hat. We weren't you know, publicly talking about it. And we knew we were going to have like a rollout in like March. So I understand we were months ahead from GPT-4, but we knew it was going to be very crazy with that. So one of our researchers, a friend of mine, says, hey, we want to go test this thing. And it was called a low-key research preview. And we're like, well, how many users do you think are going to want to play with this? And we've had other things where people have tested and whatnot. And, you know, we, you know, maybe 10,000, worst case, 100,000 max, whatever. We had no expectation for what this was going to do, because understand the core capability of ChatGPT had been in the model called GPT 3.5, which had been available for six months before. Everything, you, every cool thing you could do with it, you could get it to do with maybe a little bit more prompting and in a different interface. So it wasn't like we thought capability-wise, this is a new model. It was more like for ease of use-wise. 
Well, you reduce the friction and prompting it. You reduce the friction of the interface. You reduce the friction of having to create an account. And pretty much there's no friction. And you end up with the chat GPT phenomenon. And funny as it was, is the first week or so, it just started going crazy. But middle of December, we had an employee Christmas party. And one of our execs is like, well, you know, everybody's talking about it now. But you know the internet. A week from now, nobody will be really paying attention. Uh, turned out not true. And so it, it was insane. And, and I had my running joke in one of our Slack threads was like, okay, you know, I'm like, we, I said, it's not when, not if it's when we are going to be a subject of a South Park parody. And then, you know, we were on Saturday Night Live, South Park parody. And then, you know, the latest, you know, uh, prim- you know latest primary debate, guess what? You know, it's a ch- punchline and it's like, that's how fast that adopted. So it's a whiplash for everybody. Yeah, I saw that episode on South Park where it was written by, I think it was Trey Parker and ChatGPT. <laughs> and I think they changed it. I think they changed it. Originally, I think they went off and changed that. And I, I looked into, like my wife's a filmmaker, and we looked into INDB Pro to see if we could actually create an account for ChatGPT. Because <laughs> I thought, how awesome would it be if it could have all anybody who uses it could just credit it? <laughs> yeah, they probably got worried about, oh, no, no, that ChatGPT is going to have uh, <laughs> well, rights you know, to the it, episode or... <laughs> Yeah, and I and I get like there's yeah a lot of writers are concerned, which I'm yeah. happy to talk about that if you want. But yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say because you know being hanging out in the writers forums and Facebook groups, you know, for writers, um, especially self publishing in, in, in the indie world, um, it, I, I was kind of surprised how how uh, toxic it, it's gotten the, 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 against the against uh, AI. I understand people are fearful; they don't understand it. Do you did you realize it was going to be this uh, this it was going to be such a pushback against it and not like George George R R Martin and John Grisham and others are suing it for copyright infringement? Could you just speak to all, to all that craziness that's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to any you know obviously any litigation or anything like that that's yeah. going on, but but I, I can talk about and I, I could say that there are some severe. I have questions about some of the technical claims made by some of these people doing that, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. I would say in general, yeah, I am surprised in one the the, the rate of which the fear is sort of set in. Um, I, you know, as a writer, as a guy who does two books a year, does two novels a year, and who does take my writing seriously, you know, I I'm a Wall Street Journal bestseller, I'm a two time Thriller Award finalist, Edgar finalist, and so I think I I you know think I write good, uh, you know, for the most part. And I've been very, I've had, you know, my book Naturalist spent seven weeks on the bestseller list on Amazon, number one for everything. And so I've had experience of success. I've had experience of trying and struggling. I started off as an indie writer. I work with publishers and I work with a great publisher. I've been, I've been, there've been years where the only income I had was either what I was making from Kindle digital publishing or from selling optioning film rights and stuff. And I've had lean periods. I have great periods and whatever. And so I've, 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 you know, been involved in writing as a living for a good portion of my life. I never worried about AI taking my job. And although I assume at some point it would, you know, when GPT-2 came out, could, you know, when GPT-2 came out, you know, I looked at the quality of that and said, that's not quite there yet. And then GPT-3 came out and I said, oh, this is better. And I experimented with using it in books, using it in stuff. I think the first published stuff that used GPT-3 or GPT-4 is probably like little some paragraphs and stuff in my books that I would do as an experimental way. Like if I wanted to have an AI talk, I would do that. But I don't, I don't let it write for me because I love to write. 
you know, like, like, you know, it's like, why do people, why would you kayak if you can have a powerboat? Cause you want to kayak, you know, why would you mountain climb if you could have a helicopter? Cause you want to mountain climb, you know, why would you fish if you got fish? Cause I like to, like, I like to write. And so if people don't want to buy my books cause they prefer AI books, then that is their choice. I'm still going to write. I got into this as a writer. If you're talking you now, when it comes to me as a person having a career in the space, I think we're going to enter a golden age. I think that we're going to enter in a period of the, the opportunity for creativity is going to expand more than there are going to be creatives to fill it. And an example I give is when I present, you know, talks to creatives, I show a slide, which was the first photo that Degur took back in like 1838 or something of a person. And what it was at that time, you had to leave a camera exposure open for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, because the light, just the film wasn't that sensitive and nobody would ever sit still long enough to have a photograph. But in this case, he took a photo of a street and a man stopped to get his shoe shined. And so the man and the shoe shiner were captured long enough to see there. So you can look at this photo and you can see this. And that's the first time, you know, you have a machine was able to capture people, capture life, capture trees, everything all together. And that's an amazing point in time. Think prior to that, no machine could really capture in detail something on par or greater than a human could be able to do. And that would have been troubling and fearful for some people. And I think that some people feared what would this mean for portrait painting and what would people mean for this? But fast forward, you know, today, there are more people employed in creatives in a, on a living wage than there were at that point in time as a percentage of the population. And you have creatives who are billionaires and there were not any billionaire creatives or anything like that time at that time. And there are people living very comfortably now as creatives. You take, I show that photo and then I show a photo of James Cameron on the set of Avatar Way of the Water, where he's using his digital camera, which has no lens. It's merely a positional system that he sees in a three-dimensional space. And I say, okay, Imagine going back in time to 1838 and trying to explain to a photographer, what is TV? What is film? What is computer animation? What is, you know, try to explain them what Avatar the Way of the Water is. Like, well, this is a thing called a movie. Like, okay, what does that mean? Well, instead of a painting, it's this thing you just saw a photograph and it's going to be 24, or maybe in his case, 48 frames per second. 40 is a second. Well, how do you capture it? Don't worry. It takes me, it takes me an hour to capture one still. Like we solve that, you know, and then people pay, they go into a theater, like a play and like, what happened to plays? No plays are still a thing. Broadway's still here. It's still a thing, you know? And then you have uh, trying to explain the world of cinema, the explain of world of video games, all to somebody, it would just melt their head. Why is this going to be any different? Why is it going to be any different now that we have another acceleration of technology? And I think the opportunity and the platforms for creativity are going to increase tremendously and if you are a creative that knows how to use them as an amplifier, you are going to be in a great position. And I think a lot of fear I hear from people is I, you have to change. There is going to have to be change and we don't want to change. And it sucks when something changes. But if change happens because people are making a choice, if people choose not to read my books because they can choose something else, then that is their choice. I don't want to step in front of that and say, no, I like my way of life. I like this. Well, I do, but I don't want to interfere with somebody else. If somebody wants AI art over mine, then that should be their choice to do it. But I like to think their people are going to still want human made stuff. I've got Brandon Sanderson's book collection up here. Brandon Sanderson, you know, he did this Kickstarter. He raised $40 million, $40 million. Okay. Publishers are looking at this going, how the hell do you do that? And I'm going to give you as a point of context, Alan, I'll show you something kind of a very funny stat, not sort of more sad is he raised $40 million for his Kickstarter and if one of the companies I like to 
track just because out of perverse curiosity is Barnes and Noble. Okay. Uh, and if you look at what the value is of Barnes and Noble's like market cap, um, it's like, well, Barnes and Noble education. Let me see if I can find Barnes and Noble. Like it's barely, you know, it's maybe 10 X that, you know? And so one author was able to go re- raise, you know, you know, a significant amount of some, you know, I think JK Rowling's worth more than Barnes and Noble is now. And that shows you the power of a creative. It shows you the power of being able to have that. And thing, my point about Brandon Sanders, I backed his campaign. Here's a fun fact. I've never read one of his books. I've never read one. I hear they're great. He's a super cool guy. I just wanted him to win. And if your readers and audiences aren't wishing for us to win, AI ain't the problem. Yeah, I think that's the thing too with like um, even the the screen actor, the writers, the writing guild right now that's on strike in Hollywood. They're very concerned. Mm -hmm. One of the points is there is is uh, AI. They're worried about AI use and and yeah. You imagine now you, you. you're looking to get an advance nowadays, and he got a forty million dollars, <laughs> like a forty well, million dollar advance. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was it was people believing in him. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's people because people believe. By the way, uh, Barnes and Noble's operating income from two thousand nineteen was thirty eight million. So wow. it gives you an idea of like how <laughs> how the things are. So and, and people are like, well, Andrew, that's like you, Brandon Sanderson, Sanderson or Jake here. But yes. But if you can achieve one tenth of a percent of that success, you're going to be great, and that's going to take work. It's going to be change, having to adapt. And I'm not saying it's going to be fun or it doesn't suck. It does. And I've gone through this myself. I had a DVD publishing business where I made magic DVDs and instructional DVDs, and it was a great business. I could put out three or four of these a year. I had really good income. I mean, good income for a single guy living in South Florida. And then the internet came along and file sharing, and I watched. I watched, you know, people who I, in the business who I knew, you know, start pirating stuff, you know, and I had friends that would just, oh no, it's, you're going to sell more. I'm like, no, I said, that's a lot. I said, that is a wish. That is a wish that people keep telling me about piracy, that I'm going to sell more because of this. And I did not, it killed my business. That being said, I'm not a fan of copyright piracy. And, you know, when somebody's, you know, people, but the thing I got out of that, the internet was great. And my next business was even bigger and it was a bigger platform. And the next platform after that was even bigger. Every time I've had to adapt, you, the next platform I've moved to has been an even bigger, better one. And that's one of the concerns that I hear from uh, um, people in the writing community that are worried about it. They're, they're, they're saying that if you use something like ChatGPT, you're, uh, you're basically participating in copyright infringement can you but can you explain that a little bit because that's it's so hard to explain it but it's like it's it's anticipating things it's not like actually just copying a book no it these things they're not retrieval like you said these things are building predictive models i my favorite authors are michael Crichton, who i now share an agent with uh isaac asimov stephen king and like tom clancy if you read my, and then for a point of view, Susan Collins, Hunger Games, first person POV. Like I write first person POV because I read Hunger Games and read Susan Collins style. And I love that. It felt like a fresh way to write. And it felt very easy for me. I ripped them all off. I ripped them all off. I'm here admitting it right now that if you look at that, my first book I wrote, Public Enemy Zero, 
I was trying hard to do like, and Michael Crichton and Stephen King are very different writers, but I was trying to sort of do a hybrid of that. And, and this was the way I would learn phrasing, the ways I'd learn that. I'd read James Patterson. I'd learn how to do this. So I learned that's how I became a writer. And the idea that we can say, you know, that you can't learn from culture and books and stuff are part of culture scenes just seems crazy to me. And then because you sort of say, okay, what can you and can you not do? You know, if you say, you know, what can I learn? What can't I learn? If I is, a, can I, can I learn this? Can I save books? Can I save examples and copy things into my notebook to learn from whatever? And people might argue, well, it's the scale, you know, it's a scale. It's like, okay, what's the limiting factor of this? You know, where is the point where it's a problem? Um, I don't, you know, to me, it's just, it's, it's arguing. It's partially problem. Number one is I think that we culture is built upon this. I've learned everything from people around me. It continues on to do this. If I build a tool, whatever that does the same thing, that's the same thing. Why should that be kept separate? And if we just say, well, it's scale or whatever like that, that means electricity, you know, it's, it's unfair to steam. It's unfair to this. Like, well, no, it's just, we can say, well, it cannot, it can't be too good, you know? And that's, then we lose out on the things that we gain from it. So I just, just signed a four book deal. Okay. And I'm a very busy person as we all are. And I have time to sit down and write, but the time it takes for me to sit down and to organize all my notes and put that stuff into that format to go to the editor, to say, this is what I want to do, all that. That is a pain. That is a pain for me. It's not a fun part of the creative process. So you know, I used ChatGPT to take my notes. It didn't write any of my pitches. I wrote all those, but I said, hey, take this, take all these notes and all this messy space and consolidate this down for me. And it's made my life better. You know, I use it to do edits. I use it to do research. It's an amplifier for me. I'm able to do two books a year and work at an AI company and do all my side projects in part because I use this as an amplifier. And I think the sooner other people do this, the better. Um, and I get it, you know, people in writer's rooms and stuff are afraid of what's going to happen. Well, like, listen, like you need to be more worried about TikTok. You need to be worried about, you know, Americans liking to watch soccer more. <laughs> There's a lot of these other factors that are going to be way more displacing than I think, you know, AI is. And I think in the long run, AI is going to create a huge way, a whole world of which we can create that we haven't thought about. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. It's like having a, a a whole staff now. Like you know, you and ChatGPT is kind of like a, a a staff to help you get organized and, and and do your research and and all that stuff. Um, I'm kind of curious how else you're using it. I mean, do you do you like um, are, are you an, are you an outliner? Is that or do you like write from yeah. the seat of your pants? No, I'm an, a, definitely an outliner. That's the only way I can write as efficiently as I do. I've got actually outline for book over here. So. Um, very much. I used to be a seat of pantser, but then, you know, when you've got 10 days to turn around a novel, um, seat of the pantsing does not work for me. Um, and so I, I, I build, build up outlines, you know, and traditionally what I did is I just did book outlines, but now I start with world outlines. I start with the outline of what's going on in the world. And then I, cause a lot of times now mystery thrillers is sometimes I have to uncover stuff that happened before the story started. And usually I would just put that in the middle, but now I'm starting with the timeline of the world. Then I go write the book outline based on that. But that's made it, you know, that makes it extremely efficient for me because I get to just spend my time doing a thing I like, which is sit down and like throw myself into a scene and go, what happens? How do they solve this? How do they get out? You know, what's the change? What's this? Yeah, and I think it's been it's really good too because uh, uh, especially writing thrillers and mysteries, you know, the readers there expect certain tropes and certain things mm -hmm. to happen. So, you know, it's not like we're not it's not like as we're reinventing the wheel here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but just, I don't. 
Yeah, but I don't use AI for that though. I don't use AI for yeah. my lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, and, and AI can't write a novel right now. It, I mean, it could, it can put a bunch of words in a row. It doesn't get structured. I can go on at length and I've heard, you know, some of the things I've heard people claim like, no, it's not, I can, I can tell you when that'll probably happen because you have to have certain technical things happen, but it's not there. It can write short sketches and sort stuff like that. And, and I think that I, I had, I was just on a podcast right before this and somebody said, well, I think, you know, he says, I think mediocre writers are going to be the ones most scared. I'm like, well, the problem is, is we all are afraid we're mediocre. We're all afraid we're hacks. We're all afraid of that. <laughs> and so like, it's scary, but it's also the future is going to happen. The future is going to happen. And and even if, you know, OpenAI shut down right now and Google shut down right now, there's a huge open source movement right now to train models. There's a huge movement there and those things are getting better and more sophisticated. And you can wish the world was another way. And I mean, one thing, if it was a clear and out and out horrible thing, if, if, if we were talking about, you know, it was 1939 and it's not, you know, it, it is the age of electricity. It's the age of the atom or whatever. It's some other prospect, which could be good, could be bad. But if you focus on like, well, progress, progress is happening. How do you adjust to progress? Yeah. I think that's the thing where you hear all the, the clickbait articles about, uh, you know, AI books flooding Amazon, but that's scammers and scammers are always going to scam. Even before AI, they were. Yeah. And they get like three reviews and I've seen people post like code to write it. And my challenge to anybody doing that right now is tell me you read one of those books. (laughs) You know, that was like, cause like Amazon just put out a thing today where the limiting a person can't upload more than three books here. And so like, and there's ways to sort of like, if the danger is crap, that's fine. You just go look at, well, it's got two reviews. Chances are nobody else wanted this book. Um, but eventually they will get good. They will get good. Do you think that in the future, like, I mean, you're saying they will get good. So are those fears correct sometimes? Will we be replaced or will there always be a room for a writer like us? Like I, human? It, it will always be <laughs> room from artists. I mean, do, do you do you buy stuff purely because like, Taylor Swift is doing blowout con- and I'm saying again, I'm not making a concert argument because I always hated that, but like Taylor Swift is, you know, doing blowout attendance at concert arenas around the world. You can just listen to her album. It's cheaper. You just listen. Why? Why you have a better experience at home with headphones. Why? There's something more there. You know, I buy books from authors that I like as people, and maybe I will like some AI generated fantasy stuff, but we love, we love that there is a George R. R. Martin there creating stuff. We love that there was a Robert Heinlein. We love that there was a person that we identified with, we connected to. We love that there's this crazy weird guy in Maine named Stephen King who's writing this stuff. We're just as fascinated sometimes about the people who make the stuff. But if you're anonymous, I don't mean if you're anonymous and you're interchangeable, then yeah, AI is going to be a threat. And, and and we may find that some of the authors we really like were actually AI. And I don't think that's going to go over well, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's going it's to be an interesting future. That's for sure. Because you are traditionally published and you have agents and everything. Is, is that something that are they asking about AI? How are you using AI? Because now with Amazon uh, on KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing, you have to check a box whether or not you're mm-hmm. using AI or not. Yeah. So the, the publishing industry is certainly talking about it. There are questions about that. But I remember the publishing industry is still getting over, you know, the introduction of the selectric typewriter. So <laughs> their ability, yeah, their ability to like, yeah, even ebook stuff. That's a th- I could go on about how they they don't even realize how much the paradigm of what a book can be and what the opportunities are right now. Like there's just, you know, we, so many books would be better at 120 pages, but publishers like, oh, the economics doesn't work. When you were shipping paper, it didn't work. But in the world of, you know, 
bits, it does. And there's people doing really well by that. Uh, so I'd say there's some concern and whatnot about that. I mean, a lot of concern, a lot of, lot of talk about that in that world. Um, and more of like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe it won't all be rosy, but I think that the opportunity is huge there. And I think that like, I, I, you know, I have some foreign editions of my books and I get covers back. I'm like mid journey, you know, not even Dolly. I'm like, I know, I know how you did this, you know? (laughs) So tell us about your new, your new book that you have coming out. It's a new series. Yeah. It's called night owl. It's about a, a former counterintelligence operative named Brad Trasker. And I wanted to tell a story of somebody who was sort of kind of a bit of a cold war or, or, you know, post cold war sort of person trying to adapt to what it is like today. And if you think about the last 10 years, what's happened is, from cryptocurrencies to blockchains to AI, things have changed rapidly. And you have entire you hear about gangs that what they do is they might literally a gang could be like four dudes in Guatemala who are really good, you know, Python programmers who figure out an exploit and are able to take your hospital data and lock it up and charge you, you know, make you pay a ransom. And so these things are changing a lot, but also that world of where we are right now, but it still interfaces with the real physical world. And, you know, you look at the Ukraine, which is launching attacks against Russia using drones, using DJ Mavics and stuff. And so it's a guy trying to adapt to this changing world. And so he goes off, he's disillusioned, obviously, goes to work for a tech company because he comes across a young woman who's very smart and, you know, is in a situation where she could use somebody with his skill set and basically finds himself in a very different world where the stakes are even higher, so to speak, and the 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 level of sort of deceptions. And he has to adapt and figure out how does he apply what he knows in this world. And that's coming out on December 1st? I believe so. Where can the uh, listeners find you? Because uh, you have some great information on your books and AI and everything. What's the best place to find you? Um, on Twitter, at Andrew Maine. That's at Andrew, M-A-Y-N-E. And then my website, just Andrew Maine, Andrew, M-A-Y-N-E.com. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. It's just fascinating talking to you about the, your thrillers and AI. It's just uh, such a crazy time. <laughs> it's, it's exciting, I think. But <laughs> yeah, I I think that I I know I've, I've dealt with some very charged emotions online with people, and I think that it's one of these things when you start to play with the tools and you see the potential behind the scenes. I've talked with some incredibly talented, and creative people. You know, very very successful people who are very excited about it because they look at the biggest limitation on them is not their creativity. It is tools to amplify it. And that's where we are right now. I think we are heading towards a golden age if you want it. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Meet the Thriller Author. I hope you had as much fun diving into these mysterious and thrilling worlds as I did bringing them to you. Your support keeps this show going, and I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It helps me make the show better, and it also helps other thriller enthusiasts find us. For more details about this episode, past interviews, and other great resources, head over to thrillerauthors.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my Thrilling Reads newsletter. You won't want to miss the exclusive deals and book recommendations. If you're interested in my own writing, you can find more about my mystery and thriller novels at alanpeterson.com. You'll find all the details about my books and what I'm working on next. And remember, that's uh, Peterson All Ease, not Peterson. So that's alanpeterson.com. Until we meet again, keep turning those pages and enjoying great reads. Thanks again and stay thrilling.